0: You said
1: Peter. Eric. You said Peter Bull like a true true Southerner there, Nathaniel. Peter Bull. Peter. Peter Boll?
0: Boll? You got Peter <laughs> Bull in here. I love Peter Boll. I Like him and everybody loves Raymond. Yeah, I like I like it when he says that he hates his wife. It's my favorite thing.
2: <laughs> the first letter of the name has been uttered. Today, on the Projectionist Lending Library, we discuss Jorge Luis Borges' short story, Death and the Compass. The brilliant detective, Lon Rowe, chases his enemy, Red Sarlacc, through all four quarters of the city. Their contest culminates at Tristleroy. But what is the real mystery Lonrose seeks? And who is Red Sarlacc? These are some of the questions we'll discuss today on the Projectionist Lending Library.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Projectionist Lending Library. I'm Nathaniel Booth. And I'm Eric Klein. And today we are talking about Jorge Luis Borges' Death and the Compass and also the movie adaptation from 1992 directed by Alex Cox and starring Peter Boyle. And Christopher Eccleston. And Christopher Eccleston. Yeah, I I remember I first watched this movie years ago, and it was right after I'd started watching Doctor Who. Uh-huh. So it was kind of a thrill because Christopher <laughs> Eccleston is my doctor. Uh, he's the doctor that I first started watching Doctor Who with. He's, at this point, maybe my second favorite doctor because Peter Capaldi exists and Peter Capaldi is perfect. David Eccleston. Tennant, man. Oh, I don't like David Tennant. He's too um, popular. See, I probably <laughs> like him because I'm not
1: a huge Doctor Who fan. So, like, that's probably why he's my favorite. I'm right, like, right.
0: Oh, like, he's so charming. <laughs> so charming. He's cute. He's a cute little guy with oh. sticky-uppy hair. Uh, <laughs> I like my doctors to have a little bit of edge to them. Dark and gritty Doctor Who. Brooding. Brooding Doctor Who. A Byronic it's Doctor. A Byronic Doctor. So, yeah, um... A couple years back, a few years back, and by a few years back, I mean over a decade ago, I went through a big Borges thing, and I read, I think, most of Labyrinths. I got a copy of Fictions, and I read most of it, read a bunch of Borges, and then I kind of stopped, and I've not read Borges in years. So getting ready for this podcast, I was really excited because I went back and I reread a couple of stories that I knew I read a couple that I hadn't read and was able to sort of dive back into that Borgesian world, and it was wonderful. It was really great. Now, you've taught this, uh, taught Borges before, right? Not this story you've taught. Um... Yeah, I've, I've
1: taught the Garden of Forking Paths. I think I've taught it like twice in, in a couple of yeah. sort of survey classes I've had. So I'm not going to pretend like I, I'm some Borgesian expert or anything. I've sort of taught it as a precursor to Magical Realism. As he mm-hmm. often gets sort of positioned as, though I understand that there's some people that object to that a little bit. But yeah, like, I mean, I've, I've taught him, I've taught the Garden of Forking Paths a few times, but just kind of as a standalone thing. Nonetheless, it always teaches really well. Yeah, Students dig it. Because, I mean, it it hits all the notes. It has this intrigue. We'll, we'll talk about this, the way that his stories, particularly Forking Paths and Death in the Compass, have this sort of detective fiction aspect mm-hmm. to it. So there's this intrigue, but then it's obviously very sort of philosophical and metaphysical as well, but not in a confounding way that sort of might turn one away from it. I mean, that's another thing. As much as I see people talking like, oh, there's uh, scholars that kind of position him with magical realism. He's often positioned or thought of as just a precursor to postmodernism generally.
0: Mm-hmm. That would make sense. That uh as a like a biographical note, because I don't think we said this, Jorge, Luis Borges, Years of Life 1899 to 1986. So mm-hmm. he died the year before I was born. Argentine short yep. story writer, but he died in uh in Geneva. And
1: he spent quite a bit of I mean, he he was schooled in Europe as like a, a young person. I know like his parents mm-hmm. had moved there when he was young, and then World War One broke out. Um, so he does he's definitely kind of transatlantic in this way that yeah. he because it's not as if he like lived his whole life in Europe either. So I mean he would he he lived in Argentina lived under the years of Perón.
0: One one interesting thing uh, to kind of follow up on what you said, I think it's worth to, while pointing out that Borges, again, that Borges is very accessible. He's a writer of confusion, but he's not a confusing writer.
1: Yeah, that's a really good yeah. way to put it: a writer of confusion, but not a confusing writer. Not yes,
0: confu- he, one of the first English translations of any of his stories was Garden of the Forking Paths mm-hmm. and it appeared in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine.
1: Nathaniel what did you think about Death the Compass? I, I'm, I'm interested because this was definitely one of your picks or topics or choices mm-hmm. for this season um, and while I've read Borges and, and enjoy him I'd certainly never seen this movie but I also actually wasn't even familiar with this story although I did see that Harold Bloom said it was his thought it was the, and that's why i was like oh that's why nathaniel loves I it would, i was gonna uh... mention that just for you i was gonna mention that
0: just for you i was waiting to see how much you liked the story before i brought out the blue box
1: no I, I looked at the wikipedia page too and i was just like oh in my mind i'm like that's why nathaniel wants to do it yeah i'm just kidding but like why did you want to do this story i mean well, it does fit do you want to like kind of explain why you wanted like, why you picked this?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. One reason, uh, just on a sort of, a, let's say, a tonal, a tonal level for the season is I, I wanted to have, like, a variety of, of textures. And this is a different sort of texture. Another reason is I knew you would, I think I knew at the time that you had taught Garden of the Forking Paths. And so I thought, well, some Borges, bringing some Borges in here would would be good. The other reason, like frankly, like I say, it's been years since I read Borges. I wanted an excuse to re- yeah. <laughs> to read more Borges, there. and I like this story a lot. It's uh it's a weird, weird little story that seems to be a metaphysical detective story. In fact, if you read just about anything about metaphysical detective stories, they're going to talk about Borges and they're going to talk about Death and the Compass. Well, uh, can you
1: explain that subgenre pretty well? Because I know I know metaphysics and metaphysical yeah. stuff, and I know detective. What is a metaphysical detective story? Um,
0: a metaphysical detective story typically is a detective story that sort of uh, interrogates or undercuts its own basis, right? So your, your, typical, your typical detective story. You've got your murder, you've got your brilliant detective who knows things, and by knowing things solves the murder. Mm-hmm. A metaphysical detective story, you have your crime, you have your detective who knows things, but as he starts to know things, the sort of world around him dematerializes just a little bit, right? It becomes fraught. The questions he investigates become bigger than the crime he's investigating. They become questions of metaphysics, of of the universe, of epistemology, of these sorts of things. Of God, basically, right? God, yeah, yeah. It's it's an investigation of God and of human agency, human existence. Really, honestly, from my reading, it seems that most scholars of, so like John Irwin wrote a massive book about metaphysical detective fiction. There's another collection about it called Metaphysical Detective Fiction, or it's called Detecting Texts, something like that. They all trace back to Poe. Okay. All right. yeah, everything makes... traces back to Poe at the end of the day. Poe is, Poe is generally regarded or has been historically generally regarded as the father of detective fiction. This gets complicated when you actually look at the history of detective fiction because there were stories of investigation going back to Voltaire. So like stories of investigation, stories of detectives, they've always existed. But Poe is the guy who codifies it. Poe gives us a couple of things that become standard for detective fiction, including your brilliant amateur detective who lives by himself or with a companion, a male companion, in a metropolis, who despises the police and investigates for fun, and who also, and this is key for this story in particular, who also knows a shocking amount of things about arcane subjects, things that most people don't know about. In Doyle, this gets sort of, you might call it, even though Sherlock Holmes is a bohemian, there's a sort of bourgeois element to his knowledge, right? He knows things most people don't know, but it's all practical things like, you know, criminal stories, accounts of certain crimes, that sort of thing. You don't find, I think, Any stories, very possibly, where Sherlock Holmes is looking into like Kabbalah or mysticism Mm. or anything like that, which is interesting because, of course, Conan Doyle himself is a spiritualist. Uh, He believed in fairies. He believed in ghosts. Right, right. right. All these sort of things. Sherlock Holmes doesn't. And the things that Sherlock Holmes knows are all very practical. They're the sort of material and material. Yeah. Right. He says in the Sussex Vampire, this agency stands flat-footed on the ground. Ghosts need not apply. So, in Dupin, he Who's knows po. a lot of— Po's guy. that. Yeah, that's Poe. That's Poe's detective. Uh, C. Auguste Dupin, which the initials are C-A-D. He's a CAD. Dupin just knows, like, random weird stuff, and he'll just talk about it. Um, he'll dis- whatever Poe of-
1: is like pouring over whatever like Poe was interested in at that in, particular like, time. <laughs> if
0: if Poe if Poe po was convinced that the more you roll dice, the greater your chances of rolling a certain number, then Dupont's going to talk about that. It's yeah. just whatever Poe is into at the moment. The secret yeah it's a secret it's it's psycho dice (laughs) Dice. (laughs) i I guarantee you poe would have written a short story about psycho dice oh for sure Uh.
1: Have you read any of, like, Thomas Harris's, like, Hannibal Lecter
0: books? Read all of them except for Hannibal Rising. Okay. So, like,
1: to me, and it's been ages since I've read them, but I'm thinking, I am thinking of, like, Sons of the Lambs and Hannibal and Red Dragon that, like, it's almost like he takes that idea but sort of flips it because, like, Clarice isn't the one that's interrogating these metaphysical ideas like Hannibal Lecter is. Yes. Oh, yeah. I forgot yes. you fucking love that show. Yeah. I love you, that show. Yeah. Of course, he must. Of course, Killing you read must, them. Course Killing you read must
0: them. feel good to God. He does it all the time. Yeah. So, so that, like, it's almost yeah.
1: like I never really, because I wasn't familiar with this concept of like the metaphysical detective, but like, mm-hmm. as you were describing that, it almost immediately reminded me of like Clarice Starling and yeah. Hannibal Lecter, but it's like flipped. So that's yeah, just and neat. that's I don't know what to do with that, but that's just a neat observation I have.
0: <laughs> well, and and to a large extent, the Hannibal Lecter stories, especially Silence and especially Hannibal, are vampire stories, right? Mm-hmm, they're gothic. Yeah. They're gothic horror. It's a mistake to read them as sort of realist accounts of serial killers or like oh. like engaging in realism. Yeah, uh, I, they're. Uh, I would be. I would be kind of taken aback if somebody
1: expressed that they did read it in that way.
0: Well, I mean, people, people say all the time, like, well, serial killers aren't really like this, serial killers, blah, blah, blah. They, they, yeah, it's, it's common to sort of interrogate these things based on realism or representation or anything like right. that. And I think that's just a fundamental mistake of genre because what they are is their gothic horror uh, with Hannibal Lecter, especially in Hannibal, Hannibal Lecter functioning as, as sort of the, the vampire at the center of the story. But see, also, Edgar Allan Poe was a writer of gothic horror. The detective story and the gothic story have always been deeply implicated in each other, going back to Poe, uh, if not before. You see this in the gothic stories of the 19th century where, like I think Anne Radcliffe's stories, they would very often give you a natural meaning for all the weird things going on. Right? So they function kind of as, as detective stories and gothic stories. You also right. see these in the stories of uh, thinking golden age mysteries of of John Dixon Carr, who wrote a bunch of uh, – we're going to get back to metaphysical detectives, actually, with this note. He wrote a bunch of stories featuring a gigantic detective named Gideon Fell. I mean, just a prodigious man, huge man, who was modeled on G.K. Chesterton. And oh, uh, I've been
1: reading a series of his essays.
0: Chesterton was an interesting fellow. We're going to sure circle back is. to him. In John Dixon Carr's Gideon Fell stories, very often the horror, the gothic horror, would sort of intrude on the mystery, and they were very, they would be very atmospheric. Now Carr is influenced by Chesterton, and particularly by Chesterton's uh, detective stories featuring Father Brown. Borges is also influenced by Chesterton by his Father Brown stories. The Father Brown stories are also metaphysical detective stories. They're stories about a little priest who goes from place to place, and he solves mysteries, murders, thefts, that sort of thing. And very often in these stories, the trick hinges on one of Chesterton's famous paradoxes, right? So you've been reading Chesterton's essays. You know that he was addicted to the paradox, perhaps to the point of insufferability, uh, where he would say, "People think this, but actually this." One of my favorite is where he calls calls criminals, he calls burglars, staid old cosmic conservatives. He says that the real radical is the policeman who insists on bringing order to cha- to a chaotic world where actually the criminal is the conservative because he's he's uh, wanting to keep the state of nature intact, <laughs> right? Uh, agree with it or not, that's sort of Chesterton's method, well, right? Is He'll... that paradox or is that, – like that's just being contrarian. I mean I, for Chesterton, the two are very much the same thing. But Yeah, okay. And, and so in in A Father Brown Mystery the solution very often depends on a paradox. One of the most famous is The Invisible Man, where the, the solution hinges on the fact that this is so common now that it's not even a spoiler, right? Everyone knows this. It hinges on the fact that there are some people you just don't notice. So in The Invisible Man, the killer is a postman. And so the police who are watching this house, they're like, no one ever came up to the house. No one ever visited the house. But someone did visit the house. It was the postman, right? Right. right and so right. the idea is, well, sometimes you just don't notice these things, right? The thing is so, under your nose. Things under your nose. Now, a key part, and this is from Chesterton's essay, Defensive Detective Stories, which I take as my – this is my foundational text for understanding detective fiction. What Chesterton says in Defensive Detective Stories is that – Detective stories are the first major form of literature to capture the romance of the city. So the idea is that cities are, we often don't think of them as romantic, but they actually are. Because in a city, nothing is insignificant. The countryside is a chaos of unconscious forces. The city is a chaos of conscious forces. Every slate is a hieroglyph, he says. There's something good about walking down the street and thinking that every person you pass may be a policeman or a criminal because it brings to the city a sense of romance that battles against the sort of modernist ennui and dissatisfaction with the city. So let's take this in two directions. First, going backwards, this obviously ties him into the city walkers that Walter Benjamin would later write about in the Arcades Project. So these walkers who would walk around the city there, that ties him back again to Edgar Allan Poe's Man in the Crowd. Yeah. It also ties him forward to the postmodernist because there's this passage in Pension's Crying of Lot 49. So the protagonist, Edipa Moss, is, is mounting a hill. She's driving through California, of course. And she looks down and she sees San Narciso, which is the city where part of the action takes place. San Narciso, Narcissus, right? Right. She stares down at San Narciso and she thinks it looks like a a part of a computer, right? With all of its connections, with all of its grids and that sort of thing. But it also looks like a hieroglyph that seems to be giving a message. So Chesterton here is at this sort of pivot point in detective fiction, which he – he echoes stuff that, that goes all the way back to Poe, but he also forecasts stuff that's going to go all the way up through Pynchon and Paul Auster and these other postmodern writers who play with detective fiction in various ways. In the middle of all of this, we have
1: four <laughs> <laughs> When you said that Chesterton says detective fiction is is romance of the city, part of me thinks too, and this isn't my own idea, I don't know exactly like where I picked this up, but romance... And detective fiction, it's all fantasy. It's fantasy literature. You know what I mean? I mean, like romance, and and to be clear to listeners, we're not talking about like romance, like Daniel like Steel
0: Or romance, yeah. Yeah, Z-R like we're R talking romance.
1: romance, like think knights and dragons and damsel in distress kind of thing. Like ro- that's like yeah. a romance. And, and so say romance of the city, and I've always felt like at least – the traditional sort of detective story, maybe not the the metaphysical detective story or some of our postmodern playing with it, but the 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 traditional detective story is very much a kind of, of its fantasy. It's you know the good guy wins, the bad guy gets his comeuppance, like mm-hmm. the 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 damsel in distress gets like you'd be more knowledgeable of this to me. No, but like I, like I, the I sort kind of... of formula of it seems to kind of correspond i
0: guess yeah we're getting into stuff that i talk about in my book actually i'm excited um, god and the great <laughs> detective coming out soon i don't know exactly when but you can pre-order it think about raymond chandler and think about his his essay the simple art of murder and he says that very famous passage that begins down these mean streets a man must go who is neither tarnished nor solid blah 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 right, right. he's describing a night. Um mm-hmm. Chandler Chandler is self-consciously working in the genre of romance, where instead of a knight errant, he has a private eye. Instead of a damsel in distress, he'll very often have like a, a femme fatale right? Right, sort right. of thing. But it's still this idea of romance. And a lot of people want to say, well, Chandler, private eye, he's doing this as as a new thing. But in fact, I think that he's doing a very old thing. If you take Dupin, uh, a ground post Dupin, and you push him backwards, right, there's one point. That, I mean, the very first story begins of the. I, I'm i doing this all from memory, so I, I can't. The features discoursed of is analytical. None are more susceptible, less susceptible to analysis. The idea is that you can't analyze analysis. You, mm-hmm. you know your mind can come to conclusions, but when you go back and say, well, how did I come to those conclusions, it becomes very difficult to, to trace that chain. What's interesting to me is that that's exactly what Joe Paulus tells Henry David Thoreau in The Maine Woods. Joe Paulus is an Indian tracker, mm-hmm. and uh, Thoreau says, well, how did you know that this was the right path? And Paulus says, I can't tell you how I know. I can I can give you an idea, but I can't tell you exactly how I know. And that's also seen in, oh, wow, James Fenmore Cooper's Last of the Mohicans, which has scenes where they track down a party of Huron who have kidnapped these girls, and they do it by finding their footprints and saying, oh, you see this moccasin? It looks different from all other moccasins because the stitching is like this, and then you can see this tree is bent in this way. That's Sherlock Holmes stuff, right? They're, mm. they're doing the Sherlock Holmes thing, right? So this is where we're getting to the point, right? <laughs> the Fenmore Cooper stories are romances. He's taking Walter yes. Scott. He's transposing him to the American frontier. And then Poe transposes the American frontier to the American city. yes disguised as Paris, because no one actually believes that Dupin is in Paris, even though it's set in Paris. It's set in New York City. And so he moves the detective to the city. And then from that time forward, the detective is always has within the sort of romantic tinge. And it doesn't matter if you're looking at Sherlock Holmes, if you're looking at Philip Marlowe, if you're looking at uh, Ellery Queen, all of these characters are romantic characters Mm -hmm. in this precise, very precise, generic sense That they are questors. They're seekers after truth. They're seekers after the ineffable. Sometimes this is submerged in your sort of most rote banal murder mysteries. And then sometimes, as in the case of uh, Father Brown, as in the case of Borges, we kind of last back to Borges, sometimes it becomes the open thing that they're thinking about. Borges in Death and the Compass is openly thinking about thinking. He's openly thinking about knowledge and about the quest to know things and how difficult it is. And what can be known and what cannot be known. And he's also satirizing a whole genre, right? Because one of the things this story is is, is a satire. Yeah, I'll say more
1: it. about that because I, I'll i be honest. I didn't read it as a satire. I only thought satire when I watched the movie a little bit. So, like, how, you, is this, how is this okay. story? So is...
0: Can you give us a very brief summary of the story? Very, very brief. The
1: detective
0: is Lonro. Rowe. Lonro, Rowe, yeah. <laughs> I
1: keep his like Monroe. No, Lonro. Yeah. Uh Eric Lonro. Eric Lonro. And there is a murder that happens. And at the murder, there is a note that says this is the first letter of
0: God, right? The first letter of the name has been uttered.
1: The first letter of the name has been uttered. Okay. The second letter of the name is Manada, blah blah blah, mm-hmm. and so Lon Lon Lonro Lon takes this to mean like, oh, they're looking for the letters for God, um, mm-hmm. and so he kind of look looks this out, and it's like there's four letters, and he comes mm-hmm. up with what J H V H, I imagine mm-hmm. Jehovah, um, yeah. yeah yeah yeah, and then so there's there there's been three murders, and he's like, well, I know the fourth fourth murder is going to correspond to this, and he kind of figures out where it's going to be, and he goes there, and he, what, gets shot?
0: He gets shot, yeah, because the killer turns out to have been a master criminal named Red Sarlacc. And I looked that up. App- apparently Sarlacc is just Scarlet Fever, so he's Red Red. It's it's This is one of, I think, a couple of Poe references. This is one of the more subtle Poe references, uh, because it's obviously referencing Mask of the Red Death. Um, which is becomes explicit in the movie version. We'll get to that very actually. much so. Yes, So it turns out Red Starlick has been planning revenge because Lonro was responsible for uh, his brother's death. And so all of this, everything, the the name of God, the repeated patterns of four, all of this is a red herring.
1: It's all just sort of irrelevant but Lonro thinks it's super relevant exactly so he is pursuing these things
0: exactly one of the things borges is engaged in is a, a sort of generic satire mm-hmm. uh yeah we're told explicitly in the first paragraph that uh lanro thinks of himself as a pure reasoner an Auguste dupont but when you look at his pure reasoning, this is pure Poe, right, the, the <laughs> way he reasons. So at one point, Trevor Honest, the commissioner, and you remember in the, in the sort of an, the gentleman detective genre, the police are always idiots. They're idiots in the DuPont stories. They're idiots in the Sherlock Holmes stories. They're always idiots, and they exist to be foils for the detective. And one of the things that they always do is they always suggest the most banal, obvious answer. All right. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens here. Trevianus says, We all know that the Tetrarch of Galilee owns the finest sapphires in the world. Someone intending to steal them must have broken in here by mistake. Yarmolinsky got up. The robber had to kill him. How does that sound to you? Okay. Now, as we discover at the end of the story, this is what happened. But here's what Lonerose says. And this, this, is, this is such a Poe thing. Like you can imagine this appearing in a Poe story. Possible, but not interesting. Lonro answered, you'll reply that reality hasn't the least obligation to be interesting. And I'll answer you that reality may avoid that obligation, but that hypothesis may not. (laughs) The hypothesis that you propose, chance intervenes copiously. Here we have a dead rabbi. I would prefer a purely rabbinical explanation, not the imaginary mischances of an imaginary robber. To which the commissioner very sensibly replies, I'm not interested in rabbinical explanations. (laughs) I'm interested in capturing a man who stabbed this unknown person. Okay. (laughs) Now, in your traditional detective story, the detective's right. The dull, literal-minded policeman cannot understand that a brilliant mind is at work, and so you've got to find the hidden thing. And very often the detective will discover the hidden thing because he knows something that the, de- that the police don't know. And typically it's some sort of arcane or very often it's some sort of arcane thing. So going back to John Dixon Carr, very often he'll have the explanation of the crime begin with an explanation of like beekeeping. Right? Like, everyone knows that in beekeeping, you have to do this, blah, 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 blah. And that's what led me to my conclusion, right? In the Ellery Queen stories, often the solution will turn on Ellery knowing something about, you know, books. There's one late Ellery Queen novel that turns on him knowing the origins of the alphabet, Right, he solves the crime <laughs> because he recognizes that the the things involved correspond with ancient ideographs that were the origins of the alphabet. Um,
1: and you know what's, what's so fucking fantastic about this story by Borges, you're pointing this out, and again, I didn't necessarily read this as a satire, I did read it as a sort of deconstruction, but that he's pointing out why the fuck would not only a detective know or have to know these things but why the fuck would a fucking common criminal Mm -hmm. (laughs) like use these elaborate fucking systems to like choreograph their crimes like it's fucking Gotham City (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's (laughs) yeah well I mean
0: Gotham City Gotham City is tied to Batman obviously Batman is tied (laughs) Batman is uh, but see Batman's a ripoff of the shadow the shadow is a ripoff of the Scarlet Pimpernel right they're they're all they're all tracing their lineage oh, back oh, back, take, back to romance I'll
1: take issue with ripoff
0: but yes what I want to get to though is another thing that happens, which is what what I call somewhere. A free fall of meaning. So we've heard of free play of meaning, right? Mm-hmm. See, I, this idea that that the reader can make sort of interpretive leaps and make connections and that sort of thing, right? Uh, free fall of meaning, though, it's where there's things mean too much. You have excessive meaning, and it becomes paralyzing. This is also something that shows up in more the more developed uh, multiverse movies that are coming up because you know everyone's got the multiverse now most of them are kind of bland and banal but then you often have something like everything everywhere all at once where the idea that everything is true becomes tremendously freeing right yep. the idea that everything that can happen is happening right now death in the compass I think is a little bit more pessimistic on this score uh, although maybe not we'll get to the last line in a minute, but what Borges does is he introduces a number of different elements that actually have become very recurrent in popular fiction and fictions of investigation since then, right? So I mentioned that the use of the name of God, right, the unpronounceable name. We don't know how Jehovah was originally pronounced because there was a religious injunction against saying the name of God, and well, it's so it's the divine I am. It's the divine I am. So what they did is uh, when they were trying to figure out how to pronounce it, they just took the letters to Adonai and they just stuck it in Jehovah uh, because we knew how to pronounce Adonai. So you just stick it in Jehovah and you get get Jehovah. So unpronounceable name of God, right? The highest name of God. We talk about this in the story, right? The 99 names of God. What is the hundredth name? Well, it's the ultimate name of God, right? Obviously in lots of different traditions if you know the name of a thing you can control it or you can have access to its power somehow this is why adam is able to name the animals right Right. adam names the animals because he knows their essential nature and he can control them
1: and in ursula k Guin's, she unnames them i don't know if you've read this story but it imagines eve renaming everything because she realizes how like that everything he named was for his own power
0: You've got this idea of the unpronounceable name of God. You've also got this idea of psychogeography. And specifically, like so you've got psychogeography in the sort of regular sense of the situationist, right?
1: Well, quickly, uh,
0: like for listeners,
1: what's psychogeography?
0: Okay, so psychogeography is basically trying to determine the the psyche or the the spiritus loki, the spirit of a place by walking around and observing its, its landmarks. In the case of the Situationists, this was done as a sort of political project. They call this a, what, a detour? It's French. I don't know. So they would walk around, and they would walk in ways that the city planners didn't design it to be walked. So sometimes they would take a map for another city. So, like, I'm in a certain city. If I were to take a map of Atlanta, Georgia, and walk around this city using that map, and then just look and see what I discovered okay the idea is to anarchically subvert the intentions of the people who want to control the way you think because to design a city is to to control the population and part of the way you do that is control thoughts and um, space yeah thoughts and space yeah so that's one form of psychogeography you also have a sort of more let's call it occult psychogeography and you find this particularly in alan moore's From hell. (laughs) (laughs) Alan Moore's really into this. His book, Jerusalem, is like one of the things it is apparently. I've not read it. It's over a thousand pages long. Uh, But one of the things it is is a psychogeography of Northampton.
1: Northampton.
0: Uh, Yeah, Northampton's the center of the universe. (laughs) Um, But as Borges tells us, everywhere is the center of the universe. And actually, this is something Alan Moore says in one of his interviews. He says he wants everyone to realize that wherever you are, that's the center of the universe. You can walk around and find just as many things there. Right, right, right. So in From Hell, there's this fabulous sequence where Jack the Ripper takes his cab driver around London, and he points out all the landmarks of London and he describes their occult significance so there's a church that is built on a tem- on land that was once a temple of apollo allegedly there's a tower like obviously the tower where the princes were killed you have all these different things right and he describes as he walks through the, the city looking at these landmarks he describes a pentangle so so he describes occult symbols on the surface of the city. You can see this when, you, like, go to the crazier parts of the internet. You can find people taking maps of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and linking, like, the Lincoln Memorial to different other places and describing. Oh, I've seen the Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code's the perfect bastardization of all of this, right? right? yeah. Uh, Umberto Eco once said in an interview that he invented Dan Brown. He said, <laughs> I he said I'm responsible for a lot because I wrote Foucault's Pendulum, and... In Foucault's pendulum, I create Dan Brown. I think I think Borges has as much of a claim for inventing Dan Brown as Echo does. But Dan Brown's the same way, right? Dan Brown says that you can see you can see in cities these secret codes, right? Hell, Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, which is probably ripping off from hell, does the same thing, right? Murders take place at particular locations in the city to to create the sort of dark magic uh, pentagram. That shows up in Death in the Compass, the way he discovers the final place, Trieste du Roy, which is what, Tears of the King or Mourning of the King? He discovers that there were three points, and he deduces, because there's four letters in the name of God, that there must be four points. And he does a geometrical thing and says, okay, so if the first one's here, the second one's here, the third one's here, fourth one must be here. It's We've a rhombus. Done, it's a rhombus. We've done east, west, east, north. We must go south. Right. Right. The point is, all of this is in this story. And if you wanted to, and I very much did, you could get lost tracking down the Kabbalistic significance of the name of God. You could get lost thinking about psychogeography. And this is exactly what Lundro does. He gets lost in these sort of abstract ideas. And in so doing, he misses the concrete fact in front of him which is that a killer with a name, a non-supernatural killer with a name, committed a murder and then set up this huge trick to fool him into naming the wrong killer and actually to to get him into a trap where he can himself be killed. That's one level of this story. But here's the other thing that we have to do. We have to think about the last part of the story because the last part of the story after very... thoroughly destroying the sort of metaphysical superstructure that is to say borges has red sarlacc come out and say oh ho ho i fooled you lonro this was all a (laughs) trick you're you're an idiot for thinking that kabbalah had anything to do with this right then we get to the very last paragraphs and if i may, in your labyrinth says lonro to sarlacc there are three lines too many I know of one Greek labyrinth, which is a single straight line. This, this passage has stuck with me for the decades since I read this story. I know of one Greek labyrinth, which is a single straight line. Along that line, so many philosophers have lost themselves that a mere detective might well do so too. Scarlac, when in some other incarnation you hunt me, "'pretend to commit or do commit a crime at A, "'then a second crime at B, eight kilometers from A, "'then a third crime at C, four kilometers from A and B, "'halfway between the two, "'wait for me afterwards at D, two kilometers from A and C, "'again, halfway between both. "'Kill me at D, as you are now going to kill me at triste "'The next time I kill you,' replied Scarlac. I promise you that labyrinth consisting of a single line, which is invisible and unceasing. He moved back a few steps, then very carefully he fired. Okay, so this is a reference, of course, to Zeno's paradox. Which is what? Okay, so Zeno's paradox, he, he invents it to disprove atomic theory, but it's since been used by philosophers and thinkers for other purposes. Basically, he says that uh, if, if Achilles, who is famously one of the fastest men ever to live, were to race a tortoise and he were to give the tortoise a head start, that he could never catch him. Because, according to Zeno, if atomic theory is true, then everything is infinitely subdivisible.
1: Importantly, right. it's important, I think, for our listeners to note, atomic here we're referring to like Lucretian Ancient, like classical sort of ideas of the atomism and not yeah. like Oppenheimer-Einsteinian
0: exactly. atomic yeah. theory. Yes. Exactly. And, Our and listeners so this should is, know that. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point to bring in. So, so I mean, this has been used for a lot of different purposes. Uh, famously, I think Lacan uses it to talk about desire, the nature of desire. Uh, you can never uh, – Achilles must always chase the tortoise. You can never achieve desire. Right Okay, But also I think in the case of in the case of Borges, it seems to be symbolic of knowledge or of wisdom. You can never attain wisdom because it's always going to be so many fragments ahead of you. And that's the labyrinth of knowing, but it's a, but it's a deceptive labyrinth because it's a straight line. And with a straight line, you think, oh, I should be able to get there very quickly. But the more you go, the further it recedes. It's like, oh, I was watching a video about this the other day about space in video games. This, the guy was talking about it was Jacob Geller. I don't know if you're familiar with his YouTube channel. It's really good, really good videos about about video games and at one point he talked about the mario staircase in uh mario 64 i think where mario starts to go up the staircase and mm-hmm. the music is like this ascending uh chord. it's a deceptive ascending chord; it doesn't actually ascend that much it just sounds like it does and he keeps running keeps running keeps running and then he turns around and he finds that he's not moved it's it's that same sort of thing with this labyrinth right you keep running and running and running but when you stop you find you've not advanced at all Right. right, because because that space that you want to traverse is infinitely infinitely subdivisible. That's what pushes us back into the realm of the metaphysical. Right, it's not the mysteries of it's not the mysteries of God, except insofar as God is the the mystery of God is the mystery of knowing anything at all. Right? Well, yeah, and this this positions again to go back to Ellery Queen. This positions Red Sarlacc in in the position of being the player on the other side which is a, a phrase that comes from uh, not Aldous Huxley, but Thomas Huxley. Huxley describes science as playing or, or research as playing a game of chess with a mysterious player on the other side whose moves are always logical and rigorous, but who we can never actually access. Mm. Right. In Ellery Queen, that's that's used to talk about God, but, but there's a sense in which any time in a crime story you have a master criminal – like Red Sarlacc, he is God. He's the mysterious player on the other side who sets a trap for the detective. And this idea of God as a a trickster, right, this ties us back to the Aleph. In the Aleph, he talks about the the ancient hermetic, uh, the saying, as above, so below, it's a belief that everything on earth has its correspondence in the heavenly realms, right? Right. Uh, and the further down you go, you're still going to find these correspondences. Occult psychogeography relies on this, too, right? Uh, the idea of ley lines relies on this, too, right? So here again, like Lon we're getting in the weeds. Right, we're getting lost in these in this mesh of connection. <laughs> but the play the 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 in tarot the symbol the first symbol that indicates as above so below is a magician. Right, he he raises one hand to the sky. He points one hand to the earth. That is literally as above so so below. And as um, Rachel Pollack informs us in her tarot wisdom. The magician is also a trickster figure. We talked about this, I think, when we talked about Nightmare Alley, right? He's a right. hermetic figure. He's a trickster figure. God's right. a trickster. God's a trickster in all of this, right? He's he's always at once revealed and unrevealed and right. always at once helping but also hindering.
1: I mean, when we go back to the idea that myths exist not to explain things but to make significance of those explanations – Yes. Um, make significance of those things and, and many belief systems sort of tie back to this idea of the divine as a trickster because not that like oh like there's not an explanation but oh the significance is either not what you think it is or maybe the significance is nonsensical I'm thinking of like zen sayings
0: yeah there's a quote from uh Madeleine Langle. And it stuck with me for years, and I never even tracked down the context to find out if she expanded on this. I just remember this one quote. so Someone was asking her about God, and she says, One of the things you have to understand is that God is a shit, (laughs) but that's okay. He's much more interesting that way. (laughs) (laughs) I've never tracked down the context of that, but that quote has always stuck with me. So there's a sense, and we can get to the movie as soon as we do this, I'm talking a lot this podcast, I'm sorry. There's a sense in which the mistake that Lonro makes in Death and the Compass is not that he's seeking to know metaphysical things, it's that he's seeking absolute knowledge. Right. He's trying to find the name of God.
1: Well, he's also trying to use metaphysical reasoning to make sense of material reality, which might seem like a very kind of obvious thing that a lot of people of faith do. But like, I think Borges is sort of indicating, if God is a trickster, like is sort of indicating the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like slippery nature of that. Like if if, if you're looking for metaphysical rationale, well, that can be mm-hmm. whatever you imagine that you, that then in turn, but can become a sort of logic or reason or shape yeah. that you sort of put on the world around you to make sense of it like a fucking cookie
0: yeah. cutter.
2: Right. And, um, and
0: this is precisely where, again, we're we're tending towards postmodernism. Right. Right. Yeah. With the the anxiety or distrust of the narrative. Yes, Meta-narrative for listeners is big story It's the 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 big story that explains everything Yeah Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yes, absolutely
1: Um, Cool, well let's pause And then we'll come Mm -hmm. back and talk about the movie
2: Of all the detectives on the city force The most renowned is without doubt Eric Norrell Between ourselves I often doubted the methods of Monroe and his men Open and shut case, isn't it? Monroe Nobody knows better. It's possible, but it isn't interesting. Hasn't it occurred to you that Red Scarlak has something to do with this? Yes. I rejected it. It is too obvious. Red Scarlak is a vindictive and vengeful killer. Three and the, the police clue. Oh. was an unconventional detective. There was Bill again. There are 3,000 detectives. Now, how many of them got the way he does? Thank you. Right. What ultimately you fall but ultimately, the stone was wrong. Might well have been avoided. If you wander into the wrong room, you might find yourself in serious trouble.
0: And we're back once again. I'm Nathaniel Booth. I'm Eric Klein. And we're moving on to talking about one of the movie adaptations of Death and the Compass uh, from 1992 and or 1996, directed by Alex Cox, starring Peter, Bo- uh, Peter Boyle, Miguel Sandoval, and Christopher Eccleston.
1: This movie, I will admit, caught me off guard because it was so fucking bizarre and and weird, and I remember, like even 15, like when there's that whole weird scene and the like black and white scene towards the beginning, I was like, what the fuck, Nathaniel? Like, what did you have us watch?
0: Like for listeners, the number of times that Eric has said, what the fuck, Nathaniel, (laughs) while we've been recording this podcast, it's actually a lot more than you would think. (laughs) It's more than what's making it on. It's more than what's actually making it on the podcast.
1: This movie is like so weird and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean it in a particularly like problematic or troubling way. It's just weird. It's bizarre. It is probably, I would say, the most weird movie we've watched on this podcast, which is saying something. We got The Fly, we got The Swimmer. That was a weird ass movie. Mm-hmm. Like we got we we've watched some weird things, but this one was just because it it isn't just the content that's weird, the way it is filmed, which is so 90s indie movie, is yes. just it's just wild. It's 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 hard to explain. Again, I don't want to say like I mean this in a bad way. I will say in the first probably 15-20 minutes, I probably thought about it in a bad way, but it's sort of you get used to it, you ease in, and you it's like, okay, in. this is what it is. <laughs> you just kind of get used to it, but it's it's a bizarre film. I don't know how you came across
0: this. I, I don't remember. It's been over a decade since I saw it last.
1: Like I it it's just like it it's one of those movies, again, kind of this indie 90s type film, clearly low budget.
0: Like very low budget. Like yeah. you
1: can wa- like you can see the low budget <laughs> nature mm-hmm. of this movie. It it's one of those movies where, yeah, I that is another thing that crossed my mind. I was like, how did Nathaniel even? Know this thing existed.
0: <laughs> I honestly do was not it, remember. Well,
1: it was it may, was it was in your Borges phase, like you were it was reading my Borges phase, definitely in my Borges, Borges phase. Stories, and I probably, yeah,
0: heard of it and decided to check it out. Like, we should be clear it's Borges is very accessible. The story, when you read the story, you can spin all these thoughts out afterwards but when you read it it's really well written when and when um, you read
1: it it follows like you're like i'm reading a detective story
0: yeah it's, it's just very accessible very well written very uh plotty mm-hmm. right in the way that detective stories tend to be and uh this movie is not this movie is not accessible <laughs> like you say it opens with um trevenian giving a monologue directly to the camera well, no, it opens – let let's be clear. The title sequence is over a labyrinth, so it's the different turns of a labyrinth. And, and it's the in camera... all – and
1: the font is, like, this, like, bloody red –
0: it's like bloody red. It's it's great. It's fantastic. And then the camera it says
1: Peter of, Boyle. I was like, Peter Boyle. It's like Christopher Eccleston. I was like, Christopher, Christopher Eccleston. Eccleston. Right. Yeah. Those are my first two notes that I made while
0: watching this movie, <laughs> both with exclamation points. Both with them. exclamation points. Yeah. And so the camera sort of it, it, c- pushes into this this very elaborate mansion, and you discover Trevanian, who's the, the commissioner, and he's talking directly to the camera. And this who is, is he a, played
1: by? Miguel Sandoval. And he's great in it. Like, he's wearing this, like, yellow
0: tux kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> he's got a, a yellow suit. And what, what color is Peter Boyle's suit? Uh, Like a royal blue. Like a royal blue. Like, they yeah. got very bright suits. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the yellow suit makes me think of uh, Blue Velvet. Oh, I was going to um, say Dick Tracy, but... I thought you were going to say Curious George. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of these things are true. <laughs> so so he's ta- he's telling us the story of death and the compass, right? Now, these are very strange sequences. They remind me in some ways of the video segments in the original mist, where the guy would look up and say, "Oh, you've come. Here. Here's a book." This will take you to the island i, haven't thought, about that? I
1: that? haven't thought about that game in ages like myst
0: myst yeah they just was, did a remake of it it's pretty good like I updated graphics okay yeah. i'll
1: have like i seriously because i remember playing that on like er, like old old p like what 95 96 probably yeah. pc yeah um and i loved it i haven't even
0: they're doing it. a remake of riven right now the sequel i never played that so. one uh, it's good. It's really okay. good. It's frustrating in the same way that Mist is frustrating. Right.
1: But it's, fu- well, talk about a puzzle.
0: Right. Exactly. A labyrinth. A labyrinth of books, actually. <laughs> there's something, there's something Borgesian about Mist. So the other weird thing about this is that it's very obviously cut right so like he'll be talking and then between sentences he'll jump right yes so it's very obviously cut between different takes or whatever and it's done in such an obvious way that it's a stylistic thing it's not just oh the director didn't or the editor didn't know what he was doing right Uh, that is not
1: one of the things i meant when i talked about it being very visibly low budget
0: yeah, no, because the visibly low bit budget comes in the next section when he starts telling about the bank robbery. It's not a bank robbery. It's a robbery of a place where the government burns old money. And so there's this whole raid on on this used money facility. I mean,
1: that's all in black uh, and white,
0: right? And it's all in black and white. And that the the movie's not all in black and white, but this particular but this is. section is. And yeah. it introduces us to Red Sarlacc. It introduces us to Uh, inspector borges who's a the only blind inspector on the force Mm -hmm. and is played by the director it's got one of my favorite parts of the movie he pulls a gun on red sarlacc and he says even though I am blind, I am a crack shot. Now tell your <laughs> men to drop their guns. And Red Sarlacc, who's who's wearing this, like, preposterous mask, and he's speaking with this vocoded voice, like, very synthesized. He says, My men, what about my women? <laughs> and then <laughs> Inspector Borges goes, Your women? And then immediately these two women shoot him, and he dies. And so that's the end of that opening sequence. And they're in these, like,
1: sort of, like, the women are sort of, like, in these, like,
0: Harlequin, like... They're in these Harlequin in, costumes. In, like,
1: costumes, and they kind of giggle around and stuff like that. And, yeah, I mean, actually, in, in that sequence and then the sequence at the very end, there is something kind of carnival about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not, not necessarily carnival about it. I was going to uh, say not
1: necessarily carnival, like, not, like, uh, in, like, the Bakhtinian sense, sense, but but like in just like the sort of carnival like the dressing up the elaborate sort of well maybe there's something bacchanalian too about like flipping it i don't know but it's one of many aesthetics in this movie which contributes it to contributes to it being somewhat Weird to watch because, yeah, like because another thing too, like the 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 scene that you're talking about, like with the burglary, like the black and white thing, yeah, like they have these sort of voice synthesizer type things, right? Mm -hmm. But what that Mm -hmm. sounds like to us, and this is kind of hinting at the sort of metaphysical aspects of the story, is it sounds like demonic. It creates this sort of supernatural element to it. In fact, like the movie. Seems to me, at least, to be a little bit more like supernatural than the story does.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in addition to Red Sarlik, who we'll will talk about more. On top of that, you you have this recurring graffiti through the throughout mm-hmm. the movie. You find it. I think you see it three times because I made a note every time says red is god red is god and so going back to what we were saying in the previous section about the player on the other side right the master criminal is a stand in for god in a right. lot of these stories and that's sort of literalized here where red is said to be god and also turns out to be as as he is in the in the story in the story we're told, the last we didn't talk about this, but the last murder isn't actually a murder. It's a disappearance. And the man who disappears is Red Sarlakk, right? he He plays him, Ginsburg. And uh, in this movie, Red Sarlak not only plays Ginsburg, but he also appears in his own person as Red with the mask on. But he also appears as the journalist that's going along with Peter Boyle. Yeah, like Zols, Zeus. Zols, yeah, Zolz, yeah.
1: Which is a a, a different like a, a character created for the movie. He's not
0: in the story, right? He's not in the story. He's created for the movie. He's the guy who makes the con- helps Lonro make the connections. He's mm-hmm. when Lonro wants to know what is the name of God, he calls this journalist played by Christopher Eccleston, and they they. Kind of work in tandem with each other.
1: Well, I was just going to say, in a, in a big way, like because we get the reveal that you know he is read and kind of the line that he has towards the end is this where you're going i don't mean to like steal your
0: thunder. no keep talking
1: keep talking i was just gonna say like because towards the end he like specifically you know says to Lunro like you were making connections where they didn't exist whatever his line is, yeah right yeah so once we get that reveal we realize as the movie goes on that he relies on Lulls as a sort of interpreter or informant yeah. that he's sort of also guiding him so it's not just you just made these connections that didn't exist you're also making connections from this person that's informing you Mm -hmm. and like hinting at them and if it's true as the graffiti says and as it comes at the end like red is god it's sort of like oh like what sort of like just kind of bullshit is he throwing your way
0: yeah, it makes Sarlacc, even though he's active in the story, and the story's active in the background, here he's active very much in the foreground. Right. He's very much involved in whatever is going on.
1: But we don't know that as viewers until the end.
0: Yeah, theoretically. Now, were you surprised by the reveal? No, but probably because I read the story. Okay, yeah. I was watching it knowing the reveal— I had forgotten that Eccleston showed up so early, I, but it, I, every I time honestly, Scarlike showed up, I was looking at him. And I was like, "Oh, that's Eccleston." It's obviously Christopher Eccleston.
1: See, I didn't. It it wasn't obvious to me until like the end when they're in that big building library. Which we did talk Labyrinth. about the building. Yeah, yeah, the like, building
0: that seems bigger on the inside. It's got rooms that repeat each other it's i mean it's
1: that's definitely a place in the movie where it's sort of referencing a lot of other borges stories of like and here's the space that yeah it's bigger on the inside it's sort of infinite these chambers go on forever yeah exactly
0: yep yeah and here's a little bit of red meat for you eric um (sighs) the the house is the house is characterized by fearful symmetry. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> everything everything comes in twos. It's got it's got fearful symmetry. So, Borges now is in bed with Blake here, uh, and the idea of infinite reduplication, right? right? In one of in one of the Borges other Borges stories, and I forget which one, there's a character who says that both both mirrors and copulation are evil because they multiply the number of men in the world. <laughs> this idea of infinite uh infinite replication that shows up at the end of the short story where he talks about reincarnation. Right. It also shows like up in
1: the next one. Life. Like, yeah, what's the line next like, in, life? In the next life.
0: Yeah. If there is one, then you can yeah. Yeah. Me here, and or see, whatever. Yeah. The movie makes this more sort of concrete by making it clear that Lonro is a Taoist. Um, yes, it's true. Connects him with various sort of Eastern religions. Uh, but interestingly enough, the first time we hear about the Tao, we don't hear it from Lon Rowe. We hear it from Christopher Eccleston's character. He's walking by recording something about the Dao De Jing in, uh, in his little tape recorder. Okay, so the movie does a couple of different things. One of the things it does is it sort of doubles down on Lon Rowe's character as a gentleman detective. He's almost like an intellectual James Bond he, like, sits around in, like, dressing gowns in this penthouse apartment while beautiful women smoke around him. And they'll be laying on the bed with him smoking, and he'll have these books of Kabbalah spread in front of him because, you know, he's less James Bond. He's more, um, did you ever see the movie In Like Flint? I oh, I know it, but I haven't seen it, I don't think. It's fantastic. It's like an American James Bond. but Who's near. in there? Coburn? Not Coburn. Yeah, James Coburn.
1: It is. James Coburn,
0: yeah, which uh, most people I think nowadays would know from The Magnificent Seven. He's the knife-throwing guy in The Magnificent Seven. Okay. The original Magnificent Seven. In in, like, Flint, he's a super spy, but he's also super sophisticated. He'll meditate for hours at a time and can stop his heart from beating. He can recognize what region of, like, France a certain kind of bouillabaisse comes from because of the herbs they use. Like he's like James Bond plus, right? And right. so that's kind of what Lonro is here. He's he's like a super duper sophisticated guy. He's into Taoism. He's into Eastern philosophy. He's got beautiful women who lay on his bed and smoke while he reads the Kabbalah. And uh, it's funny because he's got this beautiful woman in his apartment. He's not interested in her. I don't know why she's there. Because he has no interest in her, which I guess is an index for how evolved he is as a as a person, and he's played by Peter Boyle. <laughs> and yeah. we, checked, we checked, we checked, and this is before the the original version of this. So there was a fifty five minute television version uh, that aired in nineteen ninety two on the BBC, and then it was expanded to an hour and twenty something minutes but it took years to do that. I think the expansion occurred in like 96. I think you said what's the date mm-hmm. you saw. Yeah. So this is mostly Peter Boyle before everybody loves Raymond. He's the he's but, he's, he's he's the grandpa on Everybody Loves Raymond. He's the Raymond, grandpa. Yeah. He's Raymond's dad in Everybody Loves Raymond. But he still basically looks the same. Yeah, he sure does. And so you've got the grandpa from Everybody Loves Raymond walking <laughs> around in these bright suits wearing but... this fedora
1: he's wearing these bright suits until like the last like third of the Uh film when he puts the white coat on
0: the white coat like that's just
1: like that sort of classic like detective coat exactly (laughs) there's this grand scene where he's just like what coat am I gonna wear and he pulls it off and then he wears it the rest of the time like collar up and he's like. Call her up. And he, he,
0: at the same point he puts the hat on and he looks at the camera and pulls the hat down like <laughs> now I'm doing noir yes. um, it's a great performance I love it <laughs> yeah absolutely um, the other thing but here's what I wanted to get to so he goes he goes to the house right in this case he's with Christopher Eccleston they go into the house they do the walking around the house they talk about mirrors blah 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 they finally Go up a staircase. Spiral staircase. Spiral staircase. Very important. They get to the top and it's a round sort of pediment almost. Yeah. And Eccleston pulls out the gun, shoots Peter Boyle, because of course Eccleston has been Scarlack the whole time. <gasps> dun dun dun. <laughs> Two women in Harlequin costumes show up. Eccleston reaches up and he pulls off his mask to reveal his true self <laughs> and his true face is Christopher Eccleston. It's exactly <laughs> the same face. The difference is he's got some circles under his eyes and his hair's a little bit crazier
1: and white, like his face is like has white he's makeup got, like, on white it. Yeah. makeup on. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Talking mean,
0: about Batman, this was a this was a very Batman sort of thing, like eccleston as the joker
1: okay i i and, yeah no i yeah i didn't think about that as i was watching well, his it, but performance
0: like... his performance because through the whole movie eccleston's playing a very straight character like very typical sort of eccleston performance right eccleston except for in doctor who i guess he generally delivers pretty straight ahead performances right, right. i'm thinking about in the leftovers for instance but then he pulls off this mask which is his own face and suddenly He's doing stuff that you would see in the 60s Batman, in the Burton Batman, mm-hmm. even in the Schumacher Batmans. He's capering around. He's talking in a ridiculous way, right? He has these
1: Harlequin women, like, kind of jumping around, like, giggling, like, saying different things. And and then he puts on, like, this, like, mask. But the he mask... Another mask, yeah. The mask... Okay, so two things. One isn't very serious. Because, first of all, I saw this mask and I'm like, that's like the same material from like American Gladiators. Like it mm-hmm. like it was like that's very American. cheap. Yep. <laughs> um, but two, well, neither of these are serious. But two, like with the with the Joker references, because Joker in at least in Scott Snyder's. New fifty two run of Batman, like he he provides a little bit of a possible origin story for Joker, and he's like the the original like Red Hood, Red Mask. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know not not Jason Todd, who Joker kills and comes back. I was like, but he was like this mob boss, and he had this red. So I'm sorry for going down that road, but you were bringing up Joker. Um, yeah yeah, it's my so. fault. go ahead. <laughs> no, that's fine. I' mean, that's it. So, yeah, at this end, he we we see who he is. He takes off his face like in very kind of um Tom Cruise mission impossible fashion. and he has this kind of demonic kind of face. I mean, I, I know that like it's pretty basic and just sort of, but I mean, again low-budget movie like Mm -hmm. but like the white makeup like the sort of red um lipstick he the the crazy hair that he has Mm -hmm. but like he reveals who he is to to Peter Boyle to Mm Lundro and then what is Lundro's response that's why he repeats that line right like if, if if we meet again
0: yes but he doesn't give the labyrinth Line instead he quotes from the Aleph. Right. So at the end of the Aleph, uh he says, uh, there's a there's a mosque, and he gets the location of the mosque. In, he in says Cairo. on in Cairo, yeah. And uh, in this mosque, there is a pillar, and this pillar has an aleph. Yeah. Right. And so in the story, Death and the Compass he says meet me at a certain point on this endless maze this endless labyrinth sorry because mazes and labyrinths are not the same thing i've been told so uh, meet me at a certain point on this labyrinth in the movie he says kill me at the aleph right? right which is the location in which all things can be seen that takes that that gives it a certain a different quality in some ways because Again, he's asking for knowledge. He's asking to be able to see all things, and of course, then the camera pans back, and we see that this this pedestal they're standing on is in the middle of a vast circular labyrinth, big giant labyrinth, right. like a yep, big yep giant. Yep, yep yeah, in, middle so it, right? and, in, exactly in fact, the middle of right,
1: and in and in fact, and in fact, like it, like in that exchange that they have like on that platform, Christopher Eccleston says something like, "I am like the Minotaur in the labyrinth." he yeah. says that specific line which mm-hmm. you know in greek mythology the minotaur is at the center of the labyrinth right
0: right um yeah. so yeah. yeah
1: like but but at the very end of the movie it pans out and we see that they're on this kind of white disk in the middle of this very large very grand circular labyrinth
0: incidentally sidebar do you remember how Theseus was able to find his way out of the labyrinth?
1: Um, didn't he like have like a string?
0: Yeah, he had a thread that was given to him by, um, who was it? Was it Ari- Ariadne? And do you know Do you know another word for string? No. Clue. Clue. C-L-E-W. Clue. And oh. in fact, very often in some early, I think in some of the DuPont stories, uh, they'll refer to following the clue, C-L-E-W, the clue. This idea of following clues, which is what detectives do, ties them to Theseus, who's seeking the the Minotaur or as as Christopher Eccleston says because he's so he's so British, the Minotaur at the center of this labyrinth.
1: I never knew that. I did not know where that's like where that came from
0: that's my favorite party trick to pull that out that's (laughs) fascinating yeah no i
1: did not know that that's fascinating
0: so one of the things i want to think about here is is that that unmasking sequence He, he pulls off the mask and the mask turns out to be his own face if we take seriously this idea that red is god and so red is a sort of uh a deus abscondicus, right? It's a God who hides. This goes back to searching for God or meaning, which are the same thing. That meaning is always hidden. It's always right out of sight, right? Right. But the right, possibility right. is always that that meaning is, when you find it, it's going to be something that you had already found.
1: Right under right? your
0: nose. Right under your nose. You find this in, uh, You find this in the Library of Babel, right? Where he says it's possible that you've already read the book. But you just didn't recognize it because there's millions of different variations. So there's something interesting to me about the fact that Red hides himself by disguising himself as himself. And that's what pushes the – because, again, the whole thing is, oh, no, all these clues to God that you were looking at, they were false clues. But here's the most interesting thing, and you kind of get this in the Borges story. You also get it here. There's a sense in which the false clue might actually be the truth the the deception might actually be de- the de- the deceptive part of the deception might actually be the pretense that it was a deception to begin with yeah this takes us back to the magician right the magician is a trickster
1: borges i mean this i'm i and i mean this in a figurative and literal sense but he that's like what he does he he takes things and sort of has them sort of collapse in on themselves the free-falling kind of thing you were talking about i love that term by the way but like but that he it's all of those but not and more at the same time yeah And he does it in such a fantastic way that, again, to be clear to listeners, is very accessible. This is not, as we've been talking about it as I was reading it, like, obviously, we talked about Joyce, Blake Burroughs (laughs) came a lot to my mind. yates has come to my mind mm-hmm. like but all these kind of like hard to pin down readers that's not like somebody i'm gonna go, to, go around like oh you gotta read some fucking william butler yates like i love
0: yates i'm pretty sure you've said those exact words to <laughs>
1: Well, you're like a different audience.
0: I'm a I'm a different okay. Okay.
1: <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, but like mm-hmm. we're Borges, like I feel really comfortable like even talking to non-readers and saying, mm-hmm. yo, check out some of his writing.
0: Uh one other thing I d I don't know if we're gonna be able to fit this in, but I've got to say it because it's in my mind. Uh, you know what? Of course, we talked about how Borges inscribes on Poe a lot of ways. This is obviously sort of playing on the purloined letter. So if you remember in the purloined letter, first of all, Poe introduces the idea of the master criminal as the counterpoint to the detective, right? It's not that there were no master criminals in in detective, in detective fiction before, but specifically as the mirror or double of the detective, Right. right, And right, that's right, something right. that gets picked up in Sherlock Holmes with Moriarty. It's something that gets picked up on in uh, Garden of the Forking Paths. Right, The scene where the spy gets on the train and he looks out and he sees his enemy following after him, chasing him down, that's ripped straight from The Final Problem by Arthur mm. Conan Doyle. Well,
1: again, this is also the Riddler
0: in Batman. It's also the Riddler in Batman. Right. Like he's always
1: um, he that's that's his sort of threat to Batman is that he can read everything and knows every sh- everything and can play him back and forth.
0: Exactly. Yeah, his, his
1: his different villains do different things. I mean, Joker's like chaotic and like Batman's really like procedural. So like that's why he mm-hmm. but like that's that's the Riddler and that's one of the reasons why the Riddler is my one of my favorite villains. Yeah, um, is that he his villainous aspect is that he is a mastermind as much as the detective is which you wouldn't
0: get from jim carrey sorry you wouldn't get from jim carrey You you've seen the story about Tommy Lee Jones with that yes. Jim Carrey. I right? will I will what is it? I will not I will not countenance your buffoonery or something like that. I will that. not sanction your buffoonery. Sanction your buffoonery. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny because his whole performance in that movie is totally sanctioning his buffoonery. <laughs> <laughs> like I love that movie. So I, much.
1: I I need to I need to rewatch it, especially with all this news about the Schumacher. Like popping up. I don't know why it's coming. Like, I don't know why it's a news item, but I'm like, I'm intrigued and I do want to watch it.
0: So, in in the purloin letter, one of the things that happens is Dupont tells a story about a schoolboy game, right? Where you hold, I see if I'm seeing if I remember this right. You hold a stone in one hand and then the other hand is empty. And the other person has to guess which hand you have the stone in, right? Yeah. And the idea is that you're going to trick them by not trying to conceal which hand the stone's in, but by tricking them into thinking it's in the other hand. Poe develops this into sort of the, his whole idea of how you're going to deal with this brilliant criminal. right? And, of course, the ultimate solution here, is, spoiler alert for the purloined letter, is that the letter is hidden in plain sight. The letter's in a letter rack, right? The, the one place that you don't look for a letter to be hidden mm-hmm. is the one place where he hides the letter. Because it's um, the obvious place. Because it's the obvious place. Under right? your nose. Under your nose, exactly. And that's exactly what's going on in Death and the Compass, right? The right. obvious place for Red Sarlacc to hide is under the nose of Lonroe. Not Lonroe. yeah. L'Enroe. I just went, but yeah. Uh, the obvious place for him to hide is right beside him. Right. Right? Yep. Uh, similarly, the obvious place for truth to hide is right in front of you, disguised as an obvious lie. right yeah and so again this free fall of meaning one of the things that makes it so vertiginous is not this is important because this isn't nihilism in the sense that there's nothing that means anything it's it's in the sense that everything either means or at least potentially means something even precisely those things which are most obviously deceptive
1: it's so much more overwhelming than nihilism. Nihilism yeah. is just fucking bullshit and like lazy. I think, like, yeah. I think, I think it's, but like, with, like what you're describing, um, and what Borges does, it's so much overwhelming, more overwhelming than that. It's not that oh nothing, like nothing means anything. It's like everything means so much. Yeah. Yeah. That how do you disentangle it all? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And yeah. Again, going back to some of you know, like very early in our conversation, talking about the absurd, Sisyphus, Sisyphe. Dostoevsky. Like, uh, there's ways that you can read that as pessimistic, but I, I, I truly find it sort of optimistic. It's, mm-hmm. I, I, again, like, yeah, it's overwhelming. It's, it's something that is incredibly difficult, but at least there's something there. Like, yeah, at least there's something yeah. there to pursue and find and untangle. And, like, it's a mystery. And, I mean, shit, we didn't even get into that aspect of, like, mysteries and mystery, you
0: know? Oh, exactly. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Going, back,
1: going back to Greek mysteries and stuff like that,
0: which were... Going, going back to Oedipus, right? The, right. The, that... the sort of primal mystery there.
1: Well, and, like, the Dionysian mysteries. Like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. but, like, these things are kind of the very basic essence of life. It's good. I mean as always like with our discussion especially on movies that i'm feeling very kind of meh about yeah. like i always walk away from our discussions like loving the movie so much more
0: much more yeah yeah i i think i wrote on letterbox after i watched this that i i like it i'm not sure it's good but i i'm i'm kind of inclining to think it's good now it's so off putting it's so strange uh we didn't even talk about how Blade Runner it is like did you get Blade Runner vibes because I got serious yeah I mean there's
1: definitely there's definitely some kind of like post-apocalyptic punk vibes to it in the city yeah
0: um the neon
1: lights and
0: yeah neon lights the 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 vast empty buildings where people walk around right it's very uh and of course like next season we're doing science fiction I'm assuming we're going to try to get Blade Runner in there we probably and, will, uh, yeah, you could probably do something with Dicks, uh, especially later in life, his his sort of gnostic proclivities mm-hmm. and Borges and his Kabbalistic interests because Kabbalism and Gnosticism very often overlap and intersect in various ways,
1: yeah, very much so uh, I mean, so to that's... my to my dumbass, like, I mean, isn't like the difference m- more of like a whatever your religion is, like Kabbalism is more jewish and gnosticism is more christian
0: yeah you can get more fine-grained than that
1: i assume Uh, there's more differences than that i guess that's like my dumbass way of yeah because
0: there's also christian kabbalah or, or or western kabbalah which is different from from traditional kabbalah some some practitioners distinguish it by spelling they use a k for jewish kabbalah and a q for Western Kabbalah—it's just it, there's a lot of sort of gradations because in the 19th century, the Theosophists and the occultists—they sort of usurped Kabbalah from Jewish traditions and they turned it into its own thing, or their own thing. So it's it, it's kind of, but yeah, th- and that's why I said like Gnosticism, Kabbalah. There's intersections, there there's overlaps, right? Uh, I I don't know enough about either. I'm 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 very, I'm a very much a long row in this. Uh, I'm I'm a enthusiast who's letting my enthusiasm running away with me. Okay, what else do we want to say about the movie? Another thing to remind me of was uh, Brazil, Terry yep, Gilliam's yep, Brazil. You know, yeah, got those yeah, vibes not, as well. I've not seen that, but I've seen other Gilliam movies from around that period, and it's got it's got a Gilliam feel to it. It's got a um, Gilliam feel to it.
1: Yeah, I don't. I honestly don't have a, a a ton more I need to say about it. Like, I think it's 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 bizarre, but I think it's worth checking out for the interested person it's not a movie i'm gonna go around like oh you gotta see this but for the right person it's like oh you should check this out like it's it's really interesting and i almost want to rewatch it like after our conversation like it's yeah i i think it's Got more going on it than I gave it credit for, especially as I had mentioned in our conversation, like the first 30 minutes as I was acclimating, I was like, what the fuck? Like, I, sh- I would love to at least go watch- rewatch like that beginning part to have that same brain on like before I got used into it, because so much of the beginning, I was just... I don't know, nonplussed, like literally didn't know how to respond.
0: One other thing that I, I, I'm going to point out, I haven't watched the whole thing. There was another version of this made in 1977. Yeah. Called Spiderweb. Uh, and it's on YouTube. Oh, okay. And uh, it's it's only about half an hour long. Oh, okay. Uh, and it stars Nigel Hawthorne as Lone Rot, or Lone So um, it it would be interesting at some point to watch the two in conversation and see if they've if they've got anything to say to each other. Uh, I watched about a third of it and it's it's really interesting. It reminds me more of Orson Welles' The Trial, uh, which was his adaptation of the Kafka story. Right. So it's it's worth worth checking out. I think. Let's take a break and when we come back, we'll give recommendations and sign off. That That sounds great.
2: But it doesn't matter to me now. If thinks oh. it's just a crime, that must be a noble. I, on the other hand, resist the notion of a suspect, even a motive. What I do is decipher the crime from within. You understand? Suppose the Hasidim. Who would your second guess be? Red uh. Scarlet or the Freemasons? Well, the circumstances of a crime the people involved, the suspects, the names, the faces, the criminal records of the guilty party, the court proceedings, the sentences. It means nothing to me now. I can't connect with it.
1: And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Projectionist Lending Library. uh, As we've talked about Borges and uh, Death in the Compass, we are going to sign off here but before we do as always we're going to offer a couple recommendations of what we've been enjoying maybe what some of what we've been looking at is reminding us of that kind of thing so um nathaniel what did you have for listeners right now
0: Uh, a couple things they're not they're not really connected to borges um just for listeners to to know this we are recording this very shortly after our previous episode so yeah that's why i'm not going to
1: bring up the bear again
0: because right, I, wa- so I, I want to, because I finished.
1: Want it. to? <laughs> it, it's good. God damn it! It's so good.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so we're we're recording. Yeah, just just so listeners know, we are recording this a little bit early so that we can take some time during our summer to not record. And uh, so, as a result, my my recommendations are kind of smooshed up a little bit. So, I'm going to name two things. One of them's old. Well, they're both pretty old. First, I did finally watch Andor on Disney Plus the Star Wars series. Mm -hmm. And um, you know this, Eric listeners. If they're friends with me on social media, probably know this. I'm very critical of like Disney plus Star Wars. Uh, Not for the reasons that like the fandom menaces, too woke, too womeny, blah, blah, blah. I don't give a shit about that, Uh, but it's just boring. Most of it. Yeah. It's, it's just bland Disney pablum squirted out onto the internet for people to lap up like the ravenous hyenas they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Andor is good. Andor is uh, telling a different sort of story in the Star Wars universe. It's about how revolutions are built, what goes into a revolution, what sort of compromises you have to make. It's maybe one of the most politically radical television shows currently in the offing, which is a bizarre thing to say because it's a Disney product. One, it's like an espionage like, kind of show,
1: right? Like, I haven't watched it. I, I, Everybody's like, oh, you gotta watch this, because I'm in the same boat. I'm like, I'm fucking sick of Disney Star Wars. I don't give a shit. They're like, no, you gotta watch this one.
0: It's got some espionage in it. It's got some, like, serious political thinking in it. Like, seriously trying to work through how you build a coalition, what goes into that. Really, it's worth watching, even if you don't like Disney uh Disney Star Wars because it it's easily the best live action thing they've done, except maybe The Last Jedi. My second recommendation is a book that I'm slowly working my way through. I have been for some months now. It's called The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy by David Graber. Uh Graber is a, an anarchist, quasi-anarchist, sociologist, and he talks about bureaucracy and the way that it subtly does violence on us all and it's this is a a great book for budding young radicals like myself okay and uh so it's it, graeber recently i mean he passed away recently but before he died he co-authored a book called the what, the origin of everything or the start of everything? The
1: dawn, um, uh, the dawn of everything. Dawn of I, I'm, everything. I'm, I'm making right. way I'm making my way through that right now, actually.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I've heard really good things about that mm. book. Um, and so I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out. But I I started reading uh some months ago, I started reading Utopia of Rules and Man. Let me tell you, if you work in any sort of academic institution, this stuff is gonna be so recognizable. Because and probably any sort of institution, because it's all just like stupid rules that are put in place and they're designed entirely to make you feel stupid (laughs) and they're designed entirely to maintain systems that no one justifies maintaining. It's very Kafka-esque. Very (laughs) (laughs) Kafka-esque. So, uh, so yeah, this is, this is sort of his central insight, which is that in the so-called free world, there's a there's a hidden bureaucracy that's upheld by systems of violence because he says he says here's how you know that you're, it's upheld by a system of violence could they call someone to shoot you if you disobeyed and if they could then it's upheld by a system of violence. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, those are my, and these two work together. These work in tandem, like Andor. I was watching Andor while I was reading Graber, and so while the rebels are going around talking about the imperial bureaucracy, I'm thinking about Graber's <laughs> idea of bureaucracy <laughs> and how that works out. And they they actually do line up pretty neatly. Okay. So, so yeah. Um, what have you got? What are you going to recommend to us?
1: Um, I got a couple things. I was gonna talk about Burroughs uh, William S. Burroughs Nova Trilogy, but we've been recording a while, so I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. Um, suffice mm-hmm. it to say that Borges, like reminds me a lot of him. I was gonna bring out this whole thing. I mean, talk about infinite possibilities in a book. We'll talk about the ticket that exploded another time. Another thing that does is is still kind of, I think, relevant or or or, uh Borhasian in a in a kind of way. I just reread uh Slaughterhouse Five. I'm gonna get back into my Vonnegut stuff. Um so I decided to start that out with rereading Slaughterhouse Five, which I honestly haven't read in probably five years or so. And it's such a fast read and it's so fucking great. Um yeah. I don't I don't have a I don't have a whole lot of things to say about it. I just I just recently had finished it on upon rereading it. I think for the third time. Definitely recommended. I mean
0: I was going to say, I think that's on our list for next season. I think it
1: is on our our list for next season. Um, And I was just going to say, I mean, if anybody uh, wants to read a book about war or peace, uh, this is the book to do it. I I teach, you know, a class called Literature of War, and I don't teach this in there. But upon rereading it, it makes me want to consider proposing – a, a twin course that would so almost be every other semester but of course that's literature of peace because oh, like okay. yeah. the pacifism in slaughterhouse five is is heartbreaking like it's mm-hmm. so good that the children's crusade i don't know it's it's such a fantastic i love vonnegut yeah. so much and and he's one of those writers where he's very rarely in the forefront of my mind mm-hmm. even though i read a lot of his work it's like it's it's more like, oh, yeah, Vonnegut, like, kind of, I don't want to say afterthought, mm-hmm. but, like, he he's not, like, always in the forefront of my, But then whenever I read – I mean, I teach Cat's Cradle, like, every year. Mm-hmm. Um, But then whenever I reread him, I'm like, his writing is so good. And talk about accessible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. his shit is – I mean, anybody could pick up and, and read some Vonnegut and get so much out of it. So, Slaughterhouse-Five. Slaughterhouse is one recommendation I definitely have. Like I said, that sort of sort of, for for listeners, there's there's time travel and, um, the idea that everything always exists all at the same time mm-hmm. is also present in this book, and it helps mm-hmm. our, our our main our, our protagonist sort of, uh, make sense of uh, the trauma he experiences in World War Two. And now I just realized
0: I think I may have actually recommended this before. So I stop me if I have Insectopedia. No, I mean, if you have, I don't. Rem- Go ahead, say more.
1: Okay, so Insectopedia, it's by Hugh Raffles. It, 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 it was published in, let's see here, um, 2010. And I, I, I I'm only bringing this up because I teach a, a couple chapters out of it in my um class I'm teaching this summer. Um, it's mm-hmm. yeah, so it's Insectopedia by Hugh Raffles. It's organized alphabetically, but if you look at the different chapters. They're not like, oh, A is for ant and B is for B, like L is for language. And so it talks about how insects like communicate with oh, each okay. other.
0: yeah.
1: F is fever dream. And it talks about like poisonous uh, animals. E is for evolution. OC oh, is for Chernobyl, which is about mutations in insects. Like, so, which is all to say, one of them, I can't remember. it's It's not C because that's cockroach. Kind of uh, oh, it's J is for Jews. It's all about like cockroaches and Jews and the rhetoric. It's the a way fat, that
0: Nazis would talk about the way Jewish that Nazis as, would as cockroaches. As press and yeah. cockroaches
1: and stuff like that. And and literally use pesticides in the gas chambers. Right. Yeah. Like, and yeah. so it's it's a really fascinating book. It's it's just kind of each chapter is its own little essay. Some of them are long. Some of them are short,
0: mm-hmm. but they're
1: all about bugs. They're all about insects. Um, but in really kind of fascinating human connection ways, not just yeah. like, not just like oh, here's some interesting thing about this particular insect, but like how they relate to humanity and how like mm-hmm. learning about them can help humans like learn about themselves, I guess. Insectopedia, okay, yeah. it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And it's also great too, because it's literally a book where you can just pick up and read a chapter. Like, I mean... Yeah. You could you could just go through the table of contents like oh I want to read about K is for Kafka like oh I want to read
0: about oh, nice. Kafka yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: you know what I mean so yeah it's 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 good I I recommend it the the one chapter I like teaching it's I it's El Parco El Parco del Cassine on Ascension Sunday um which is about a an, an Italian it's in Florence not in Florence but in Tuscany somewhere in Italy, um, and in a park where they had historically for the longest time had um like this cricket festival, but because of environmental reasons and then also like legal reasons they were no longer able to because they used to like sell like you could buy like a little cricket for yourself like they were no longer able to do that and so now it's turned into like they sell like plastic crickets and stuff like that but like people don't go as much anymore like it like the the festival which had been around for centuries no longer has the same like oomph that it always did and like so it talks about sort of modernization and yeah i don't know it's good check it out
0: insect okay insectopedia okay all right. Well, what are we doing next time? All right. Well, next time
1: I'm really looking forward to it. It might be a long episode. It might turn into a. It might turn into a, a twofer. But we're going to be doing yeah. "In Cold Blood" by Truman Capote. In
0: Cold um, Blood. We've been planning on this one for a yeah, while. Yeah,
1: and we've talked about this already this season, like the nonfiction novel and mm-hmm. this very famous, like, well, it's only a famous murder case because Capote wrote a book about it. Right. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been at all. It would have been just an American just then uh, you know another american murder that didn't
0: another happen. grubby murder in another grubby town yeah exactly but, um no.
1: and and along with that there's a number of movies i mean there's the in cold blood mm. movie and then we have capote obviously starring uh philip seymour hoffman which he won an oscar for and mm-hmm. then the lesser known that came out at the same time infamous starring yeah. um toby, toby jones toby jones i'm always like it's not Tobey Maguire, Tobey <laughs> so I Toby want Maguire is to- Truman <laughs> Capote. I oh want it. God. I need it.
0: <laughs> I, gosh, uh, there's also a TV movie of In Cold Blood. Okay, yeah. Okay. So there's there's four movies associated with this. And the novel. This is definitely going to be a double episode.
1: Yeah, it's going to be it's uh, going to be a lot because the and and also the novel's big and it has a lot going on in it. And also yeah. you're getting you're getting me talking about Capote. So, um, yeah, so that's yeah. what we're doing next time. It'll be uh a, a couple a, a, like over a month, anyways.
0: It'll be over a month before we record, but if everything works out, then it should just be a month before it actually drops. Right, because, because we have we're these two recording this up. one early and perfect. Yeah, we'll, yeah, so yep. it should should work out. So, in cold
1: blood, I really look forward to that conversation, and I really look forward to y'all
2: joining us. All right, take care, y'all. That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll join us again next time. Meanwhile, you can email us at projectionistlendinglibrary@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at pllibpodcast or on Instagram at pllpodcast. Our cover art is by Kit. You can find them on Instagram at Kit. Our opening and closing music is Dream Tango by E.V. Mulderen performed by the International Novelty Orchestra which is freely available on the Internet Archive and additional music is Astor Piazzolla from Libertango the track Nova Tango. Thank you very much for joining us Hope you'll join us again next time